Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 86, Causality in Observational Data. And today I'd like to talk about two papers that have somewhat inspired me over the past year. The first one is entitled, The C-Word, Scientific Euphemisms Do Not Improve Causal Inference from Observational Data. It's by Miguel Hernan, and it was published in the um, American Journal of Public Health in 2018. And the second one is about target trials, which I will introduce later when I get to it. But for starters, let's talk about the C-word. The work of uh, Miguel Hernan over the past couple of years has really influenced the way I see the relationship between observational data and randomized data. And I just think this is a great editorial. It's sort of a thought piece about the word causal and how we use that in research. And I just found it very helpful for my own thinking on this topic, and it's really changed the way I view this. So I'm going to start the way he starts, and it's kind of a funny anecdote from a researcher who's submitting a journal to a publication, and they get a little quip. It says, Dear author, your observational study cannot prove causation. Please replace all references to causal effects by references to associations. And I have both received things like this, and I have written things like this, because I, for a long time, have been of the opinion that you should never use the word causal to describe observational data. But let me go through his argument here. I'm going to kind of bring out some of the things that he wrote. And I I think at the end of it, you'll see why I've done a whole 180 on this. Now, the first thing that he says is that causal inference is a core task of science, regardless of whether the study is randomized or non-randomized. And this is just true. Like if we're doing observational data, not with the goal of establishing causality, then what exactly are we doing? Like what's the point of doing observational data if your goal is not to show that the, the, the treatment you're evaluating causes a benefit or that the risk factor you're evaluating um, is causal, is along the causal path towards some outcome? So, I mean, I, I think that this is just unambiguously true that causal inference is the goal of research. The question is just whether or not we talk about it very well. So in the paper, he says, you know, we're going to talk about a hypothetical study where daily drinking of a glass of wine affects the 10-year risk of coronary heart disease. We've all seen this study because I think some iteration of it has been published in the New York Times probably a dozen times by now. And they do the analysis and pretend you have an amazing data set and you find that the risk ratio of heart disease is 0.8 for one glass of red wine per day versus no alcohol drinking. Again, I could swear that I've seen exactly that published. But so, you know, you would say that the risk ratio of 0.8 is a measure of association between wine intake and heart disease, correct? And this sort of says to you that uh, there's a 20% lower risk of heart disease than in people who do not drink. Okay, that's fair. Um, so that might be an unbiased measure of association. If we have a great data set and we run our stats properly, we can say that that is the association. But the problem is that this could be a very biased and likely is a very biased and confounded measure of the causal effect of wine on heart disease. Now, I tried to think of a different example for this podcast, but his example is just so good because it really brings out exactly how I feel about it when I think about it. Like, who actually cares about whether or not wine is associated with heart disease? What we care is whether or not drinking a glass of wine causes a reduction in heart disease. In his words, he says, the driving question for the research is whether modifying wine intake can reduce the incidence of heart disease. I mean, exactly. That is the thing that we are trying to study. And that is, that is the useful outcome of this sort of research. 
Now, he says in a parallel universe, you know, we could randomly assign people to different levels of wine intake and force them to comply with it, but that's obviously not possible. And moreover, I mean, the more I read randomized controlled trials, and I am a randomized controlled trial purist, diehard believer, like, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know that I'm a big fan of randomized controlled trials. But the more I read them, the more I just see how flawed they are and how often they're probably not measuring a true association between the effect of some drug and some outcome. And so at the end of the day, even though randomization eliminates a lot of confounding, a lot of the problems with observational data are fixed by randomization. It doesn't mean you can't infer that a randomized controlled trial necessarily gets to this causal question. I mean, there's a lot of biased randomized controlled trials that have an effect estimate that's probably completely wrong. And we know this because we run more randomized controlled trials that contradict the prior ones. So I I think that we need to be a little more holistic about how we view data. There are many observational studies that are much better than randomized trials. And randomized trials are one tool, but observational data is another. So this is the first level of this argument, which is that what we are doing is causal inference. And so if we're trying to infer causality, we should talk about it causally. But the second level, and this is the next thing, he says that, and this is his words, eliminating the causal associational ambiguity has practical implications for the quality of observational research. And that is where I really started to be hooked on this. He starts by saying that associational questions are easy to formulate, right? And and they are. You you say, what's the association between red wine consumption and cardiovascular disease? And that is a really easy test to run. But causal questions are quite difficult. And they require you to actually think about what the causal association is that you're trying to describe, right? So if it's a causal question that you're talking about, you need to adjust for confounding. Um, you know, that 0.8 risk reduction may actually be related to more access to preventive care or socioeconomic status, he points out. And I think that's the truth. Every time I read one of these silly articles about how acai berries, you know, dramatically reduce the risk of colon cancer, I think to myself, well, yeah, I mean, anyone who eats acai berries on the reg is probably likely to have different health outcomes from someone who has never heard of an acai berry, which that was me until I read all these silly studies. (laughs) So I think that, you know, when you're talking about this from an associational perspective, you get lazy. When you talk about it from a causal perspective, you start to think about the things that would actually cause it or be confounded or cause issues, right? Now, in the last bit, he, he, he acknowledges that there's no guarantee that a causal approach incorporates all the confounders or that if you aim for causality that you're necessarily going to get there. But the, he says this, and this really stuck with me. I quote, we can have an informed scientific discussion about this only if we f- have first acknowledged the causal goal of the analysis. And man, did that hit home. I mean, if our goal is causality, and that should be our goal for most of our observational studies, then we should talk about it causally. And the other thing, and this is not something that he necessarily mentioned, but this is how I think of it, is that if this is the goal, causality, then this is the standard to which we should hold research papers. So when I read a paper about acai berries and cardiovascular disease or wine and cardiovascular disease, I'm reading it from the perspective, would recommending this to my patient be a good idea? Because I don't care about the association. I care about the causal effect of recommending this as a therapeutic intervention. And if that's the goal and that's how I'm reading the paper, then that's how I should appraise the study. If I'm going to judge this study, I should be judging it by whether or not it answers the causal question. And that would be much easier if we just acknowledge that that was the goal from the beginning. From a practical perspective, I mean, this has had two influences on me. The first is that I'm going to stop telling people that they can't use the word causal. I mean, if their goal is explicitly causal and they're using causal methods, then they should use it. And I will support that, but I will judge them by that standard. 
And the second is that I have thought a lot more about how we should be using causality in observational research, which gets me to another way that Miguel Hernan has really influenced me, which is the target trial. The second paper I want to talk about is entitled Improving Rheumatoid Arthritis Comparative Effectiveness Research Through Causal Inference Principles, Systematic Review Using a Target Trial Emulation Framework. This was published in ARD in 2020. Now, first of all, you're probably going to ask, what is the target trial? Well, the target trial is sort of an explicit way of doing the thing that I was just talking about, which is to come at observational research from a causal perspective. Instead of asking, does X intervention associated with X outcome, you say, you say, if I took X intervention and ran a randomized controlled trial with it, with X outcome, what would that randomized controlled trial look like? So it's not that you're actually doing the trial. You're asking yourself, if there were to be an ideal clinical trial, what would it look like? And then you are designing your observational study around that. This winds up having some important impacts on how you design your observational study. This paper in ARD that I'm talking about kind of goes through them one by one. And so I'll just touch base on each of those as we go through. You know, the first is eligibility criteria. So you have a clearly defined group of people who would be eligible for your hypothetical randomized controlled trial. So you're going to need baseline observational data for some time beforehand uh, to make sure that you're emulating that. Um, you need to know a little bit more information about time zero. So you know exactly when the thing started and you need to have information going forwards from there. And then key confounders will be incredibly important and there'll be some limitations and people who won't be included. So your eligibility criteria, if you're emulating a target trial, are a little bit clearer perhaps. Now the next thing is treatment strategies. If you're going to emulate a target trial, you'll have to say what happens if a patient stops your treatment. Does that mean that the treatment failed? Or alternatively, say they stop your treatment, was that part of your protocol? And if you don't have access to those data, then that's a big limitation of your study because you can't necessarily do a target trial for this one. After that, you have to think about assignment procedures. In a randomized controlled trial, this is easy. Did you randomize people appropriately? And was allocation concealed? In this case, allocation obviously can't quite be concealed, but you could ask a question about randomizing people. Um, and the goal of randomization is obviously to erase or at least adjust for uh, baseline confounding. So you can do that in observational data, or at least you can try with propensity matching and some of these techniques. And the importance is that in a randomized controlled trial, you know, you're sort of taking care of these things through randomization. In a target trial, you need to take care of them by thinking deeply about the potentially confounding factors. You can't just throw them all into the blender and see what happens. You should think about the sorts of confounders that could plausibly part of, be part of the causal pathway. And then also the kinds of things that aren't necessarily confounders, but perhaps are colliders, which should be treated completely differently. So if you're going to try to emulate randomization, you need to adjust for all of the things that randomization would have accomplished in the first place. Another big problem I see in observational research is just how they define time periods. Uh, there's so much time biases, immortal time bias, um, immeasurable time bias, et cetera, that kind of plague observational research and some really interesting publications over the past couple of years that just showed that if you don't think about time-related biases, you can essentially just measure it on accident and erroneously attribute it to some sort of uh, treatment. It's a great example of this with allopurinol and gout. So in an RCT, you know, you have a well-defined start, which is time zero. And in a target trial, you try to emulate that start. So is this the first time someone started this medication? Then perhaps that should be the start of your, your time zero as well in the target trial. Then there's a schedule of follow-up. So you need to make sure that you try to have that available. And then there should be a well-defined endpoint of your target trial. So again, you're, you know, instead of these amorphous ongoing sort of assessments of long time periods. Perhaps you have a short time period that's plausible and is uh, more closely related to the effect you're trying to describe. 
Outcomes are also really important in RCTs. I mean, we know that in RCT you'll have a, a DAS28 or a CDI response. And you know, we often don't have that in observational data if you're looking at EHR data. But if you have a, a large registry, then that should be your, your outcome. And specifying it before you run the trial is also very important. Another thing that needs to be thought of before you start your trial is how you plan to analyze it. Are you going to be looking at an intention to treat or per protocol? And in a target trial, you would say this beforehand and plan to follow through on it. And then this, again, is just so important. The analysis plan being pre-specified in an RCT is really, really useful. And a lot of observational data doesn't pre-specify their analysis. I've participated in observational data, and I haven't done this. You kind of just sort of figure it out as you go along. And in retrospect, I can see why that is just not the right way to approach this. I mean, if you pre-specify how you're going to do the analysis, then you're much more likely to do it properly. So this is sort of in many ways a challenge to me because when I've done research before, I think I've done it quite poorly. <laughs> I think that I have a lot of room to grow myself. Now, in this publication that I meant to talk about today from ARD, they looked at prior observational studies in RA, and they identified 31 studies that met their uh, inclusion criteria. And they looked to see how often these studies could be said to have followed the tar target trial framework. So I'm going to go through each of the different things I discussed in turn and just neatly course that out. So from eligibility criteria, only 61% um, explicitly included post-baseline information. Um, so, you know, there's certainly some room for improvement there. As far as treatment strategies, you know, treatments were well-defined, but a treatment strategy wasn't necessarily well-defined. Only one uh, study actually defined whether treatment changes were compliant or how that would affect a patient's inclusion or censoring within the study. So that's clearly a room for improvement. Um, as far as assigning confounders, um, only... 13 or 42% use explicitly predefined confounders, um, built some sort of DAG or some way of, to represent causal pathways. For follow-up, um, there were 14 studies that actually used binary outcomes as the time. And so therefore, <laughs> the end of their follow-up period was defined by whenever the person got the outcome, which is, is quite silly. It would never happen in an RCT. 18 studies included continuous outcomes, and only six actually specified an end to the period. So plenty of room for improvement. As far as outcomes, you know, outcomes were clearly defined in all of the included studies. I think this is something that we've, you know, generally done pretty well, but there were no real discussions of power limitations or things like that, which I certainly had never done either. So I think that this is another thing that you could think about. For causal co contrast of interest, there was a variety about whether people declared whether they're doing intention to treat or per protocol. Only six studies actually said their causal contrast prior to describing their analysis. And then as far as analysis plan, this is kind of all over the place. Uh, it was very rare that studies would uh, differentiate treatment strategies from discontinuation, which I think makes sense to consider that as an important issue, but it's not always available to you. So ultimately, 94% of studies had at least one limitation as far as the target trial framework is concerned. And that shouldn't be surprising. This is a relatively new idea and way to approach things, and not everyone is doing it or necessarily even should be doing it. There are certainly some studies that aren't asking causal questions. But I, I do think that for studies that are intending to answer a causal question, I think you should, as I said earlier, say that you're going to answer the causal question. And if that's what you're doing, then you should try to use a causal approach. And I think that the target trial framework for things uh, like this question of wine and cardiovascular risk is, is the right way to go. Um, uh, you know, obviously, you can't always get there perfectly, but I think at least aspiring to would be a, an improvement. So I'm hoping to do this in the future if I do more observational work. And I think it's an important framework by which to look at research. And I just really enjoyed the writings of Miguel Hernandez. So I highly recommend all of these papers if you have a chance to check them out.
So a little different episode than usual. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for tuning in uh, and have a great week. <laughs>